you're able to remain standing just for a bit longer, I would invite you to do so as we read God's word. Uh, if you're not able to remain standing, that's okay. Just go ahead and be seated. But either way, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 2. We want to read the second chapter, those 13 verses. By the way, any children who wish to practice the children's choir, you can go ahead and be dismissed at this time. It's on page 776. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Grab that, turn to page 776, or Micah chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, this is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people and how he, uh, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said of the house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words uh, do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise, go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, uh, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And he who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out before it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. 
You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. And so help us now, Father, by the very presence of your spirit. Give us understanding, but we want to do more than understand some things this morning, Father. Be glorified by how you would change us, that you would transform us by the very presence of your spirit as we consider your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're making our way through some of the minor prophets. This, this is our third uh, time in the book of Micah. I would remind us that Micah, like all the other prophets, were covenant enforcers. In other words, they looked back. They took Israel to take a look back to the Mosaic covenant, the, uh, the covenantal relationship that they enjoyed and uh, participated in with God. And in so doing, the prophets would point out how the, the covenant people uh, were violating the terms of the, of the covenant. Last week, we looked at the first particular covenant violation that Israel and Judah were guilty of. And the, the first one that Micah points out is the first issue in the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, where it said, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and the first indictment against Israel and Judah was that they were guilty of idolatry. They failed to love the Lord God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They loved someone or something else more and greater than they loved the Lord God. It was a failure to love the one true God. That was their first indictment. This and now this morning we shift gears here in chapter 2 and we uh, look at the next matter on the docket for indictment. Whereas last week, chapter 1, dealt with how Israel failed to love the Lord God. This morning, we will consider the indictment of how Israel failed to love their neighbor as themselves. Look at what he says. Woe to those who devise wickedness, who work evil on their beds, which they stay awake, they stay awake at night trying to hatch a scheme, try to plot and devise a way to harm their neighbor. And when the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it's in their power to do so. They covet fields and they seize them. They covet houses and they seize them. They, they covet and they take them away. They covet and they oppress a man. They covet and they oppress a man and his house. A man as his, and his inheritance. This morning, the on the one hand, the citation is upon particular 
actions that Israel and Judah are performing against their fellow man. And yet even that, he roots it in an, uh, something percolating under the, under the hood, if you would. They hatch and devise schemes of wickedness because they covet. Two things I want us to think about this morning from this passage. First of all, we'll see the citation for covetousness. It's probably where we'll spend most of our time. And then we'll look in verses 12 and 13 at the correction from covetousness. First of all, the citation. Underneath their wicked actions and underneath their um, uh, evil that they are hatching and scheming, they are filled with hearts of covetousness. Now, dipping back into last week, I mean, there's a certain logic and certain appropriate flow as to what Micah is helping us to consider and to and to think through. Last week, the, the, to, to simplify the point of last week, Israel forsook the Lord. The Lord whom Jeremiah the prophet said was the, the fountains of living waters. And so when you or I or Israel or Judah turn from or turn against the Lord. We are turning from, we are turning against the one who can quiet our hearts and satisfy our hearts. And when we turn from the one who is the fountain of living waters, when we shut ourselves off from the, the, from the one who can satisfy our souls, then we leave ourselves thirsty empty, parched, craven, driven and consumed by desire. When we turn from the only one who is the only source of living water for our souls, then our souls are thirsty. And we begin to desire to to quench that thirst. And that description of quenching that thirst is the term covet. You see, when, when we reject the Lord and we turn against him and turn from him, then we leave our hearts empty and unsatisfied. We, there's no one or nothing that can quench and truly satisfy our hearts because our hearts were made by God to only be quenched and satisfied by him and by him alone. And yet when we turn from the Lord, and we look to idols, we look to false things, and we attempt to love those idols and those false things more than we love the one true God, then we are left unsatisfied, restless, thirsty, and 
covetousness occurs. Covetousness germinates in the soil or in the heart that is discontent and dissatisfied. Coveting, coveting is the consequence of idolatry. Idolatry fertilizes the soil of discontentment, which breeds coveting. You see, when we break, when we break the first commandment, and we put someone or something other than the one true God as the chief love of our hearts, then we will quickly run down to the 10th commandment and begin to covet our neighbor's stuff. So these guys are hearts full of coveting because their hearts are empty and thirsty and unsatisfied. And so you look around to your neighbor and you say, maybe my neighbor's got something that might quench my thirst. Maybe my neighbor's got something that, uh, that will satisfy my soul. Maybe my, my neighbor has something that I can take from him and seize from him. And there's a whole host of behaviors that are listed in the other Ten Commandments that, that are really predicated upon. We, there's, we, would, we would not murder. We would not commit adultery. We would not bear false witness. We would not lie if we first didn't have hearts that were percolating out of a covetousness because we have hearts that are operating out of idolatry. So really all we got to do to keep from breaking commands 2 through 10 is just not break command 1. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. Ah, ah. You see, when we break commands 2 through 10, it's because we have first broken commandment 1. Israel is guilty of coveting, resulting in and them harming their neighbors because they are guilty, first of all, of idolatry. And in verses um, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Micah, in addition to the citation that he issues against them for their covetousness, uh, issues something of the judgment and condemnation uh, that is going to befall them because of their covetousness rooted in their idolatry. And it's so interesting, the wordplay that Micah uses here. He says in verse 1, woe to those who devise evil. He takes that same word in verse 3, and therefore thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising evil. You've been scheming to harm your neighbor, and I'm scheming to condemn you. Some of the things he says is this coming judgment, what I've devised against you, is unavoidable. It is going to be humiliating. It is fitting. And it is frightful. Then in verse 6, um, he responds to his fellow preachers. For it seems as though uh, uh, 
Micah is being ostracized. Uh, he's, he's brought such a hard word. He's brought such a condemning word uh, that uh, his uh, preacher guild is uh, out to stop him from doing what he is doing. And, and so he then addresses them, calls them out. He has brought forth the word of God, and yet his fellow uh, preachers uh, don't want him bringing that word from the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. We're special. We're an exemption. Doesn't seem to be all that in vogue today, even in Christian churches, to say much about certain negative elements that are essential components of the Christian truth. Preachers shouldn't talk about sin. Preachers shouldn't talk about hell and judgment and condemnation. Preachers shouldn't talk about repentance. I mean, you're, you're going to run off beautiful people if you are so negative like that. And thus, we concoct a, a religious system that's just nice. By the way, I'm not against nice. Anybody that wants to be nice to me, I'm, I'm all for that. And yet the real goal in, in, in gathering together in worship and gathering together under the word is, is not merely to be nice, but to be faithful, to be true to what God is actually saying to us. If we just talk about the love of God and the comfort of God and the blessings of God, then we certainly have a lot to talk about because the Scripture really talks about a, a lot about those things. But if that's all we talk about and we ignore, we're kind of squeamish, we're kind of embarrassed uh, about the hard things from uh, God's Word, if we just simply uh, teach what we think we might want to hear rather than teach what God has actually said in His Word, then we come up short. So uh, Mike is getting written up, if you would, uh, because he's saying these things about the unavoidableness and the humiliation and the uh, fittingness and the frightfulness of God's judgment upon Israel and Judah because of their waywardness, because of their covetousness, because of their idolatry. And he's being warned uh, by his guild to cut that out. Sometimes we take what are true things in Scripture, and we tell only half the story. <laughs> there is nobody more loving and forgiving than the God of the Bible. Absolutely no one more loving and forgiving, 
more filled with grace and mercy than the God of the Bible. But if all you and I know about the God of the Bible is that he is loving and forgiving and merciful and gracious, then we only know half the story. And when you, con- when you convey half the story as though it's the whole story, then you're lying. A few years ago, there was a really popular song in uh, American Christianity. I mean, it was, it was a well-sung song, uh, it, and um, it, you know, it surged into the contemporary Christian pop charts. It surged into the Southern gospel community, uh, and there's a line in there that really captures um, a, just a really distorted half view of the Lord and forgiveness. It says, though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he'll always say, I forgive. No, he won't. No, he won't. He does not forgive sins that we refuse to repent of. We're presuming upon the grace of God when we think that we can live however we want and then it's his duty to automatically forgive us when his word warns us it's only if we confess our sins is he faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Continue in your sins and it will not go well with. Turn from your sins right now. Turn from your sins. For we do have a merciful, loving God who has a heart filled of forgiveness toward all who would come to him in humility and repentance and in faith. Turn to Christ. Yes, it makes him sad as to the way we live. But unless we repent, he will not forgive. Now, see, that's a lot more negative, ain't it? I mean, just in terms of the mechanics of it. I mean, all of a sudden, that warm fuzzy just kind of went. So the preacher's union is going to call me. Joe, don't preach that. So I'll turn in my card if they do. But do do, do you see how that plays out? I mean, that's really the accusation they're bringing against Micah. Well, he's talking about all this sin and judgment and hell and condemnation and when's he going to be enlightened well he 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 must be hard-headed i guess because he uh he 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 doubles down and in verses uh, 8 through 11 uh he uh, resumes um his previous message from uh, 3, 4, and 5. And he issues warning. I was listening to an audio book about Pearl Harbor last week and this week, finished it yesterday morning. And um, uh, at about 7 o'clock on December the 7th, um, the, uh, uh, the radar post on Oahu notified their commander that, hey, uh, sir, uh, we, have, we, we see a whole bunch of planes flying this way uh, from the north. Uh, and 
as per our assignment, we're letting you know, to which the, their commander said, oh, it's probably nothing, don't worry about it. Well, within the hour, it was something, and it was a lot to be worried about. Thousands of servicemen were slaughtered because a warning was not heeded. It's, it's not God's meanness that issues us warnings. If he wanted to be mean, he just would stop talking to us. It is his compassion that would warn us, unless you repent, you too will face the fires of hell. That's not God being mean, it's God being clear and truthful. He doesn't tell us that so we can go, I'm fine with the big man upstairs. He tells us this so that we would look at our sins and we would take them as seriously as he took them when he sent his son to die on the cross for people like us. The death of his son certainly shows the magnitude of his love, but the, his death on the cross shows the magnitude of how heinous our sin is, that it took son of God blood to atone for our sins. Not so that we could stay in them, but so we could have the grace to turn from them. He says there in verse 9, the women of my people you drive out. In other words, just continue. Out of your covetousness, you're taking widows' homes. You're, you're, you're harming children. Uh, 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 it was the, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, and, and, and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. You drive them out, and so here's my word to you. Get out of here. Get what he says in verse 10, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And with a wink and a nod back to his preacher guild who wishes that he would preach another message, he says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. He said, let you guys who want to preach lies and luxury and leisure go right ahead. But I'm not. I'm not. So that's something of the citation for covetousness. Kind of, a, kind of a hard word. And then beginning in verse 12 and 12 and 13 is just this abrupt change in focus and attention and direction. It's, it's a sudden abrupt change. So much so it's, it's hard to even figure out the connection, uh, because in verses 12 and 13, he begins to introduce us to, the, to, to what God is going to do 
with the arrival of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so see, the, the prophets, Micah and these guys, as I said earlier, they are covenant enforcers. They, they look back and, and point out uh, to us and to the people that they originally spoke to. They, they point out our covenant violations. And yet, and yet they also are covenant promisers. They don't just look back to see how we have broken that covenant. They look ahead and they offer us the hope of a new covenant, a new agreement. So you see, Micah's hard words, and the hard words are, are well, they're verses 1 through 11 thus far in chapter 2, and they're pretty much all of chapter 1, and they're going to be the preponderance of the rest of the book as well. There's a lot of hard words, a lot of hard preaching from the prophet uh, Micah. But I want you to understand, I want you to get, I want us to, to rejoice that, that hard preaching is for a purpose. It has a definite end in mind. And the end is not an end in itself. The the, the hard preaching is a means to an end. Hearing how we have violated the law of God and, and how that breaks us down is meant to drive us to Jesus. It's meant to drive us away from ourselves. It's meant to drive us away from our futile attempts to our own concocted solutions. Lest we think that, okay, uh, I'm kind of in trouble. I haven't been doing what God wants me to do, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop my own religious or moral scheme to try to win him back or win him over. Enough of that. No, hard preaching like Micah brings to us, bringing clarity to our sinfulness and bringing clarity to the just condemnation of our sinfulness is meant to make you and I a desperate people. It's not meant to make us a people who feel good about ourselves. It's meant to make us desperate where we feel a true void of hope that we realize we're out of options. We have no solutions. See, nice preaching can't do that. Nice preaching says, you got this. Nice preaching says, you special. Nice preaching says, you beautiful, and you're smart. Nice preaching leaves us esteeming and worshiping ourselves. But it's nothing more than what Micah himself said of his preacher buddies. They do nothing but utter lies and luxuries and leisure. And that won't drive us to Jesus. And so what Micah gives is not advice, 
But in 12 and 13, he issues not advice. There's three steps for a happier this. There's four uh, uh, protocol for a better that. Uh, he, he doesn't give advice. He utters in announcement. He doesn't tell us what we have to do. He tells us of what God in Christ is going to do. And that's really the point of hard preaching. The one who breaks us down. Uh, uh, the, the God in his word is the only one who can pick us up and remake us and redirect us to follow him. And the imagery is lovely. It's beautiful. But it's, it's the imagery of not esteeming ourselves. It's the imagery of esteeming the Lord Jesus Christ. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together. Uh, in other words, I will, I will, not you will, but I, after I've broken you down and shown you your just condemnation, here's what I'll do. I'll gather a remnant of my people together. I'll do that. I'll Put them, in fact, together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. You see who Micah is introducing us to? He's pointing us to, as the way that the Old Testament prophets do, uh, he's pointing us to the one who, when he does show up, says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. It's the, it's the one whom uh, we read about, not only in John 10 that I just quoted to you, uh, but it's also the one that we read about in Revelation 7, who says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Imagery of a shepherd, and yet in verse 13, the imagery of a king who is their shepherd. And he who opens the breach goes before them. They break through the, and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. What Micah is pointing us to is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who gathers his people as a, a, as a, as a flock of sheep, a sheep in a pasture, the, the, the one who, as a king, goes before giving direction and guidance and help and aid to his people. And that's really what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Micah cryptically tells us these things, but, but when we read in the New Testament, when we read in the Gospels, that which is cryptic from Micah's uh, wording is crystal clear. And the way that Jesus gathers uh, sheep into his flock is that he laid down his life for his sheep. And as Carl so wonderfully Explain to us the wrath that we deserved, the wrath that Micah warned was coming to us, 
was diverted and put on Jesus so that the wrath of God becomes abated from us. He drank it all the way down. That's how he gathers sheep. He lays down his life and removes the offense that you and I have uh, before a holy God. He takes that offense away so that we no longer become enemies estranged from God, but he brings us to God so that we are now his well-loved children. And he not only then gathers us uh, by laying down his life, uh, but he now leads us. He goes before us. Why? Because God has raised Jesus from the dead and declared him to be Lord. And now we have someone good to follow. And now we have all the grace we need to follow him. Turn to Jesus. Trust only in him so that the sure wrath of God would be placed on Jesus instead of upon us. So that you are gathered like a flock of sheep, so that you now have a king to lead you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophet Micah and the things he teaches us, not only for how he sobers us up to the reality of our condemnation, but how he begins to point us to our substitute the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that on this day, we are those who are looking to Jesus, trusting only in him. Perhaps some for the very first time, and in perhaps the rest of us, we are renewing our dependence upon the faithful one, the Lord Jesus. Help us, Father. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.